Hello, this is Rabbi Daniel Karopkin. Welcome to this podcast for learning the classic philosophical work by Maimonides, or Rambam, called More Nevuchim, or Guide for the Perplexed. This text has been studied for centuries by great scholars, Jewish and non-Jewish alike. It seeks to reconcile Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophy with the Torah of our people, and is considered the perfect entree for reconciling one's spiritual and rational personas. Join me for half-hour installments as we explore the text together. All right, uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, we're trying something new by uh, using the internal system of webyeshiva.org. So uh, I hope that uh, things go well today. Uh, I'd like to welcome uh, anyone who is new to the class. Um, uh, and uh, uh, I wanna make sure that if I could, again, please ask everyone to please mute yourselves so that we don't get any of the, uh, of the ambient noise. Um, and uh, my name is Daniel Karapkin, and we are studying a very important book by Maimonides by the Rambam called Moren of Uchim, The Guide to the Perplexed. Um, we have been doing this for approximately two years already, and so we have uh, covered a significant portion of the book already, probably about a third of the book already, or maybe a quarter of the book already. And, um, and so for those of you who are new uh, to this year, I just want you to know that if you'd like to see uh, previous, cla uh, previous classes and get uh, caught up to, to be able to find the context in which we're working today, you have a number of options of where you can watch the class. You can either watch it going by going to the Facebook page of webyeshiva.org, where, where all of the uh, previous classes are, um, are archived. If you just scroll down uh, using the Facebook um, platform, you'll be able to find all of the shiur and going all the way back to the first class. You also have an option of going to the Facebook group Shi'ur in Morenavuchim, which is a separate group on Facebook, and I encourage you to join that group because you'll be able to get personalized updates as to what's going on with the Shi'ur, in addition to those who are enrolled in the webyeshiva.org uh, course. And you also can, uh, there are also opportunities to listen to a podcast of this course uh, that is available both on the OU website at ou.org. And also, there is a um, if you if you have a podcast uh, software like on your iPhone or something like that, um, uh, you should be able to find <clears throat> Morena Vuchim by Daniel Karapkin uh, on uh, which also archives a lot of these classes. So, with all that put aside, let us get our bearings and see where we are today. We are in Morena Vuchim. Uh, oh, and by the way, I should also mention that it is on YouTube as well, all of these classes on two different sites. The audio is on the channel called koshertube.com, uh, and you can also see the videos on the Beth Avraham Yosef of Toronto uh, channel, which is the synagogue of which I am the rabbi. And so uh, there's a lot of opportunities for you to watch all of the archived classes. We are in the middle of chapter 54 of the first section. We are using the Shlomo Pines edition of Morena Vuchim, and uh, I certainly encourage 
anyone who's going to uh, be taking this study seriously to go to Amazon or to go to some other bookseller and to find a copy of the book either on Kindle or get a hard copy. Um, uh, Professor Shlomo Pines in the early 1960s did a translation from the Arabic directly into the English, and it is considered to be by many uh, one of the best, if not the best, translation from from Arabic into uh, into English. Um, so we are in the middle of chapter 54 of the first section, and we're starting on page 126 in the Pines edition. Um, and um, so uh, what we've been talking about is a passage in the Torah that is in the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf. And uh, after that sin of the golden calf, the Torah says that Moshe made two requests of God. The first request that he made of God is uh, that he said to God, God, show me now or show me please your ways. And the second request that Moshe made of God is, Show me now or show me please your glory. This is something that we did last week in our, in our course when we were studying the first part of chapter 54. And this is in um, uh, Perak Lamed Gimel, chapter, Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 to verse 23, the entire interchange between God and Moses in the aftermath of the sin of the golden calf. According to the Rambam, and the way he understands this whole interchange is that Moshe's two requests are quite different. The first request was Moses's desire to understand the attributes of God. And the Rambam a couple of chapters ago in chapter 52 told us that the only type of attribute that we can properly understand about God are his actional behaviors, the way that God behaves with creation. If we seek to understand an essential knowledge of uh, what or whom God is, we will uh, fall flat and we will be unable to comprehend it. And, uh, and therefore, what Moshe was asking for initially was a fuller understanding of the way that God interacts with the physical world. And really what he was seeking to understand is just a fuller knowledge of all that exists. Because once we know what exists, we will be able to obtain a greater understanding of what the, the, the most that a human being can hope to appreciate about God. The second question, the second request that Moshe made of God is uh, show me your glory. And that was a request to understand more the essential nature of God. And as the Rambam is going through at this particular point in Moren Nebuchim, we, we explained that the Rambam has what we would call a negative theology of God, which is we can only say what God is not if we will try to define his essential nature. We're not able to explain what God is in any real human terminology that our minds are capable of processing. And so what, what, uh, what the Almighty essentially told Moshe is no one can see my face. No one can truly understand. However, I will show you my back. The um, Ra'ita et Achora, you will see my back. And what the Rambam has explained in very, very brief, he hasn't really gone into any great depth in understanding this, is that Moshe was shown some aspect of God's essence that no other human being has been ever has ever been able to comprehend before or after. But even that was a very limited kind of understanding of God's essence. And that's what is meant when God says to, Mo to, to Moses, you cannot, no man can see my face and live. 
but I will show you my back. I will show you some aspect of my essence, but it will be very, very limited in its in its scope. So that's where we that's where we we got up to uh, yesterday, and we were talking about sorry last week, and what we were talking about are when God was showing Moses his attributes, his actional attributes. He taught him the thirteen attributes of what we call the thirteen attributes of mercy or the yud gimel midot shel rachamim, and According to the Rambam, this is, in essence, God demonstrating to Moshe what his actional attributes are, that God is a compassionate God, he is a merciful God, he is a benevolent God, he visits the rewards of those who do good for thousands of generations, uh, and, and so forth. So... God is chanun, God is gracious, God is benevolent and kind. And those are the things that God taught Moses about who he is, about who God is as a ruler, as how he interacts with the world. But now the Rambam is going to take us on a turn. And that turn is to explain to us that there is also a negative aspect of the way that God interacts with the world, something which we would view if it were being done by a human being, we would view it in a very, very negative light as if the human being is behaving either in an evil way or a malevolent way. And so there, this is where we're up to on page 126. Similarly, we find among his actions that proceed with regard to human beings, great calamities overtaking certain individuals and destroying them, or some universal event annihilating whole tribes or even an entire region exterminating the children and the children of the children, leaving in existence neither the products of the soil nor the offspring of living beings. God sometimes, in a wholesale fashion, destroys entire populations of humanity. For instance, submergence of land, let's say an entire region, gets hit by a tsunami or gets hit by a tidal wave and is totally submerged. Earthquakes, destructive storms, military expeditions of one people against others in order to exterminate the latter by the sword and to efface all traces of them. So we know that this is, this is what can potentially happen, is that entire populations can be wiped out. And so the question is, what benefit is there for man to know these kinds of actional attributes, and how does man make sense of them? This is the Rambam's, in a sense, foray into theodicy, into trying to explain why or how it is that God behaves in a malevolent fashion towards mankind if we are to understand that God ultimately is the ultimate good. If God is the ultimate good and creation is the ultimate good that emanates from God, why do we sometimes find malevolence emanating from God? Many of these actions would proceed from one of us in reference to another only because of a violent anger or a great hatred or a desire for vengeance. With reference to these actions, God is called jealous and avenging and keeping anger and wrathful, which of course in, uh, is, uh, and here the Rambam uh, is quoting from the book of Nahum. Let's see here. Kel kano v'nokeim Hashem. Nokeim Hashem uva'al chema says the book of Nahum, referring to God, that God is a vengeful God, and he's filled, of, filled with wrath. No came Hashem that God is vengeful against those 
who attack him, and he takes uh, revenge on those who are his enemies. Meaning that actions similar to those that proceed from us from a certain aptitude of the soul, namely jealousy, holding fast to vengeance, hatred or anger, proceed from him, may he be exalted, because of what those who are deserving of it need to be punished, but not because of any passion whatever, may he be exalted above every deficiency. And here what the Rambam is explaining is that the Torah speaks in metaphor. And um, is a quote from our sages that the Rambam references quite often, that the Torah speaks in human vernacular. When the Torah speaks about God as being angry or vengeful or wrathful, it is metaphorical. God harbors no emotions because one of the most important principles that the Rambam has referenced over and over again in the recent chapters is that God is completely unitary. He has no essential attributes, which would uh, suggest that there are more, there is more than one component to God. Being completely unitary, God is divested of any human attributes of any kind of additional things that attach themselves uh, as attributes to God from time to time. God neither gets angry, nor does he get happy. God is neither a loving God, nor is he a wrathful God. God is simply God. And here it's very important to note that particularly in this chapter, Maimonides is taking a particularly Aristotelian view of God in the sense that Aristotle and many of the other Greek philosophers of that time took a position that the ultimate being who is responsible for everything that exists is a dispassionate being that is responsible for the maintenance of all of creation, for all, of all existence, and is a just being who, who is completely reactional, reactionary to what is going on in this world. It is, it is, it is a it is a deity which is neither um, uh, uh, happy or sad, but completely divested of emotion, pure intellect, and does that which is most just for creation. And as such, the Rambam's depiction of Hashem, of God, is the same way. God is elevated above all human emotions. When the Tanakh characterizes God in that way, it is speaking purely metaphorically so that man has an entree to understanding God's behavior. If we were to see a human being behaving in the way that God behaves with us, we might ascribe certain essential characteristics of emotion to the being who is acting that way. If a human being were to take his best friends and, and flood them, flood their homes, we would say that that person is filled with hate or anger or needs to punish those people because of certain intrinsic feelings that that person has. But God does not harbor those intrinsic feelings. Similarly, all his actions are such as resemble the actions proceeding from human beings on account of passions and aptitudes of the soul, but they by no means proceed from him, may he be exalted, on account of a notion superadded to his essence. So really just reiterating this point, we might see human beings behaving in the same way as God and attribute certain emotional uh, feelings that those people are having while they're meeting out punishment or while they're meeting out reward, but God harbors none of those emotional states because God does not have emotions. God is completely unitary and is above, and is above emotion. Now, um, 
the next section that the Rambam is going to describe is really the Rambam's first sort of discussion in Morin of Uchim about political philosophy. And I really do want to give a very, very brief uh, introduction to what I mean by political philosophy. It was a project of many earlier, uh, both ancient and medieval philosophers, to discuss the best way to structure a government, the best way to structure a political system. And uh, some of you may have heard of a book called Plato's Republic, where Plato describes the best way to establish a true republic that is idyllic in every way, that it is governed by jurisprudence, it is peaceful, it is uh, every one of its citizens enjoys the best possible uh, political system, uh, and, uh, and there's prosperity within that state. And one of the most important arguments that Plato makes is that the ruler of such a political system is what he calls the philosopher king. It is a person who is endowed with the highest level of intellect that a human being can be endowed with, and he rules benevolently and wisely and justly because he has attached himself intellectually to the highest being that prime cause what, uh, what Plato and Aristotle know as, as God. And just like God is dispassionate and does not rule based on whims or emotions, so too the ruler of the state, uh, based on the fact that he is attached intellectually to this most high of beings, also is dispassionate and governs based on justice and propriety and not based upon inner emotions. And that's what Plato describes as the ultimate state. It's important to know that um, the, Ram the Rambam, who was living in the 12th century, is living in an Islamic philosophical milieu. And as a result, he has derived much of his knowledge about political philosophy from the Islamic world. The Islamic world did not subscribe to what you and I would call democracy today where every citizen of the state gets an equal vote. That, of course, is a terrible system of government, according to Plato and according to his Islamic descendants in philosophy. And the reason for that is, is that, what do you mean everyone gets an equal vote? You mean to tell me that the most um, unlettered, uneducated, ignorant person in society has the same vote as the most enlightened, ennobled, and educated person in society? that will result in disaster. You know, um, Winston Churchill himself said that um, democracy is a terrible form of government, but out of all of the other forms of government, it's the least terrible or something to that effect. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But the point is, is that in an idyllic society, democracy is a disaster because it gives equal votes to everyone regardless of their of their uh, notions, regardless of their level of education and their enlightenment. So the philosopher king that is described by, uh, by Plato is embraced by the Islamic world, who view the imam, who view the, uh, the religious leader who is enlightened uh, by the Quran and is attached to the prophet Muhammad, who in turn is attached to God, as the, the most uh, uh, enlightened form of government. The Rambam actually subscribes to this as well. 
And we're going to see this, uh, the, uh, the philosopher probably that influenced the Rambam the most is a 9th and 10th century philosopher known as Muhammad al-Farabi. And he writes about this idea in, a, in his own book called The Perfect State. And he has a whole section on what an enlightened ruler is all about. The Rambam takes those ideas and envelops them in a Jewish nomenclature that we're going to see now. And this is only the first time that the Rambam discusses this idea about political philosophy um, in the Moren of Uchim. So let's, but, let, but let's read what he has to say. It behooves the governor of a city, if he is a prophet, to acquire similarly similarity to these attributes. And re referring to the level of, see, the Rambam views prophecy as an intellectual ennoblement, attaching oneself completely and intellectually to God. And so therefore, a prophet who happens to be a ruler is no different from Plato's philosopher king, so that these actions may proceed from him according to a determined measure and according to what the people deserve who are affected by them and not merely because of his following a passion, not merely because of his emotions or his desires. He should not let loose the reins of anger, nor let passion gain mastery over him for all passions. All kinds of emotional responses within the ultimate ruler are evil. But on the contrary, he should guard against them as far as this lies within the capacity of man to the best of his ability. Sometimes with regard to some people, he should be merciful and gracious, not out of mere compassion and pity, but in accordance with what is fitting. Sometimes with regard to some people, he should be being angry and jealous and event right, as we read from the book of, of Nachum before, in accordance with what they deserve, not out of mere anger. So he may order an individual to be burned without being angry and incensed with, with him and without hating him because he perceives the, the deserts of that individual and considers the great benefit that many people will derive from the, from the accomplishment of the action in question. So even when a king is ordering someone to be executed. He does it without any relish, without any emotional uh, attachment to that order, but rather he does so because he realizes that executing a particular criminal is actually the most beneficial and good thing that can be done for society. By, by teaching a lesson to the rest of the citizens of the state that this uh, behavior is not tolerated, and that's the purpose of capital punishment, he does so. He does so dispassionately, uh, with only th and the only thing he has in mind is what is in the best interests of the state, and that's the the the, the highest level of ruler is this philosopher king who is able to rule without passion. Do you not see in the texts of the Torah when it commanded the extermination of the seven nations? Right? And this is how the Rambam says I can make peace with the fact that God seems to be presenting. The, the Jewish people with a very heartless and very cruel kind of behavior when they encounter the Canaanite nations, uh, when they come into the land of Canaan to conquer it and to dispossess these people of their property. And the Torah says, uh, you know, uh, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy chapter, to, uh, chapter 20, that God says, you have to give everyone a chance to depart from the land. 
if they refuse to depart from the land and if they refuse to abide by the laws of the land and they want to maintain their own culture and their own identity, right? God says, Lo You may not allow any of them to stay alive in your land. You shall utterly destroy them. The Hittites, the Emirates, the Canaanites, the Frizites, the, the, the Chivites, the Jebusites. Kasher Hashem Elokech as God as as God has commanded you. And what's the reason? So Maimonides says it is immediately follows this by saying that there's a reason for this, not because you should be angry with these people, not because your heart should be filled with with emotional hatred towards these people, people, but rather for a very practical reason, as it says in verse Yudchet, verse 18, Laman, uh, and this is on your screen. That they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, and so so that you shall not sin to, to your God. Thus it says, and the Rambam continues, do not think that this is hard-heartedness or a desire for vengeance. It is rather an act required by human reason by human rationality, which considers that everyone who deviates from the ways of truth should be put should be put an end to, and that all the obstacles impeding the achievement of the perfection that is apprehension of him, may he be exalted, should be cleared and interdicted. Meaning that this is merely the removal of the impediments of this world which will prevent you from attaching yourselves intellectually to God. You must eliminate all of the uh, elements within Israelite society that will prevent you from bonding with God in the highest possible way. That's the reason. It's got nothing to do with their evil and their punishing them and doing what they, giving them their just desert because they were mean to you. It's got nothing to do with that, according to the Rambam. Okay, now, given all of that he said, that malevolence that emanates from the Almighty or emanates from a ruler that emulates the Almighty should be done dispassionately, all of that being acknowledged, the Rambam then comes back to the fact that a good ruler should always make sure that his good outweighs the bad that he meets out as a ruler. In spite of all this, it behooves that acts of mercy, forgiveness, pity, and commiseration should proceed from the governor of a city to a much greater extent than acts of retaliation. For the 13 attributes, the 13 Yudgimumidot shal Rachamim, are all of them, with one exception, characteristics of mercy. If you look at the 13 attributes of mercy, Hashem, Hashem, Kel, Rachum, V'chanun, that we're, many of us are so familiar with, uh, that God, Moshe, is, uh, is uh, in the aftermath of the golden calf, all of these attributes, except for one, are all attributes of benevolence. The exception being, Hokeid avon avot albanim ve'albanei vanim al shileshim ve'albanim from Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. The verse in full as follows. Notzer chesed la'alafim, that God preserves the kindness of those righteous people for thousands of generations. But, nosei avon v'thesha v'chata'ah, that God will endure sin and will tolerate sin for a very long time. God is very forbearing and patient. And then it says, and we'll explain that, what the term means in just a moment. 
But finally, it says, Pokade Avon Avot, Albanim Banim, Al that God visits the iniquity of the parents upon their children, grandchildren, and great grandchildren for four, a total of four generations of retribution. Now, that's the only part that is very difficult for us to understand is that even when God is being retributive of the wicked, he will bring retribution not only upon the wicked person himself, but also upon their descendants, their children, that's generation two, their grandchildren, generation three, and their great-grandchildren, generation four. And, and, and the Rambam writes, the lo means it, it derives from this, this terminology of the nikata la'aretz teshev, that God will not completely destroy. The nakei lo is not a negative ter- terminology. The meaning is that he will not utterly destroy an interpretation deriving from the words, and utterly destroy, she shall sit upon the ground. Meaning that what the Rambam says is that even when God has to be destructive, and God has to bring retribution upon evil, he will not completely destroy the, 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 he, he will by no means, I'm sorry, he will by no means clear the guilty. The nake lo yenake, God will not clear the guilty of their sin, but when a person truly is sinful in a particular kind of sin, they will not be cleared of that sin. God is very forbearing, that's what the first part of the verse said, but in the final analysis, if there's a particular kind of sin that is so caustic, and so um, and so uh, um, damaging to the fabric of the Jewish people, Hashem will not tolerate it, and He will not clear the person of that sin until that person is completely annihilated, including all of his future descendants for four generations. Now we have to understand why that is and what the sin that the Rambam is referring to. And we're running out of time, so I'm going to run through this a little bit faster, so that we have uh, so that we're we're not going to keep you on for too much longer. The Rambam's thesis is that this latter part of the verse is only referring to the sin of idolatry. And he demonstrates this, that uh, is when you look at the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, the Torah says in the second commandment, which is the command, the second of the Ten Commandments is a commandment against idolatry. The Torah says, You may not bow down to idols or worship them, because I am the Lord who is a vengeful or jealous God. Almost the exact same language that I will visit iniquity upon the fourth generation for those who are my enemies. And here, too, it's only referring to idolatry. So Maimonides' thesis is, is born by this verse in Exodus chapter 20, that when God says, I will not clear the wicked person, it is only referring to the idolater. This is consistent with the Rambam's thesis that runs throughout the previous chapters of Moren Vuchim that if a person has a mistaken intellectual idea about God, then they have there is no justification for them to continue in this world because they are completely defeating their purpose in existence, which is to have an intellectual an intellectual connection with the Almighty. An idolater is the ultimate perversion of the intellect, because an idolater has a completely misunderstood conception of what deity is. And so therefore, the highest form of punishment 
is due to the person who has deliberately perverted their conception of the deity, which is what idolatry is essentially is tantamount. So God essentially says, I want no vestige of that person or their ideology to remain in the world. And that is the reason why they have to be destroyed and all future descendants down to four generations who may have been influenced by that person's ideology will be wiped from the world. It is in this sense that the Rambam defends the, uh, the practice that the Torah advocates in the book of Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter 13 called the Ir Hanidachat, which is the city which has to be, uh, which the majority of its inhabitants are idolatrous and that city has to be completely destroyed. So we're not gonna be able to fully understand the whole idea of this idea of justice where idolatry is treated so harshly, but I just wanted to give you a taste of it for today that the Rambam says that whenever we encounter God bringing retribution upon a person's descendants, it's only in the context of idolatry. For no other sin will God ever punish the individual other than the individual and will not take it out upon their future descendants. Not everyone who studies the Talmud understands it that way. There are many people who believe that it is possible for children to bear the sins of their parents when they repeat those sins, even if it's not idolatry, but it could be other things as well. But here we're discussing the Rambam's position on this idea. I'm gonna skip now to the bottom of the paragraph on page 120, to the bottom paragraph on page 127, and just to sum it up. We have gone beyond the subject of this chapter. However, we have made clear why scripture in enumerating God's actions has confined itself here to these mentioned above, and that those actions are needed for the governance of cities. We have explained that when Moshe asked God, show me your ways, God showed Moshe how he interacts with the world and how a ruler can infer from these uh, 13 attributes of mercy how he or she is supposed to govern a state. For the utmost virtue, virtue of man is to become like unto him, may he be exalted as far as he is able, which means that we should make our actions like unto his, as the sages made clear when interpreting the verse, Kidoshim Tihiyu, that you shall be holy. They said, Mahu Chanun Afata Tehe Chanun. Just as God is gracious, you too should be gracious. Mahu Rachum Afata Tehe Rachum. Just as God is merciful, so you should be merciful as well. The purpose of all this is to show that the attributes ascribed to him are attributes of his actions and that they do not mean that he possesses qualities, again, reinforcing his negative theology. And the last thing that I wanted to show you for today is to, um, is to point, you, point you to the bottom of the handout that you're certainly welcome to download. It's also available on the Facebook group here in Morena Buchim. The Rambam has a whole section in Mishneh Torah, his codification of Jewish law, called Hilchot Deot, the laws of proper attitudes that human beings are supposed to harbor, emotional states and, and, and characteristics and personality traits. And the Rambam talks about the two greatest evils that a person can harbor in his personality. The first one is haughtiness, and the second one is anger. And uh, there's a lot to be learned about how a parent is supposed to interact with their child based on the discussion that we've just had up until now. 
just like the governor of a state is supposed to be dispassionate, so too when a parent needs to discipline a child, the Rambam writes that the parent has to display anger, but internally is not angry. As the Rambam writes, if one desires to engender awe in his children in his household or in the public, if he be at the head of a community, even if he desires to get angry at them so as to bring them back to the good way, he should only act angry in their presence so as to reprove them, but his disposition must remain calm within himself, even as a man imitates who is angry when the time calls forth anger, but in reality he is not angry. And he learns this from God. This is not just a lesson in ethics, it's a lesson about emulating the Ribono Shalom, the master of the universe. So normally uh, we would want to have some interaction of the people in the in the class, but uh, because we took so much time getting set up this morning, I'm going to uh, call it a day. This class is normally meant to only go 30 minutes. We've gone over that time. And so um, I welcome anyone, if they would like to send me an email or a comment, uh, please do so. My email address is rabbi.karopkin at b-a-y-t dot c-a. We're in Canada, so that's the suffix, b-a-y-t dot c-a. And I look forward to Bezrat uh, Hashem studying more of the Morena Bechim with you next week, same time. Everyone have a great day, and we will, uh, we will stop, stop our report.